The idea of restoration makes me think of fixing things. Something being restored, something old or broken being restored. That's what I think about when I think about the word restoration. I fixed a few things a couple of times. And I've had that sense of fixing something and feeling pretty good about the idea that I just fixed something. In fact, this weekend is a time that we have a brief vacation from our work lives. And not only do we get the grills out with our families, but we also do a lot of yard work. Probably like you, I spent a lot of time working in my yard yesterday. And my wife Libby and I, we started to pull together our garden. And every year I till up the earth in the garden and um, I'm fortunate enough to have a rototiller that's been in my family for three generations. Uh, I call it light blue. It's, it's light blue. It's a light blue rototiller and it says Sears on it. Even before the, I guess before Craftsman was a line, uh, they just put Sears on their rototillers. And each year I anticipate the possibility of fixing this rototiller. And I always think, well, maybe this is the last year for this rototiller to have an active role in our family. Um, but this year, I, I got it out of the shed yesterday, and I put some gas in it, and then I just pulled it, and it started right up. Libby and I looked at each other, and we just smiled because it was a big mystery whether or not this rototiller would start or not. So I didn't need to fix my rototiller But fixing things, as I said, it it does bring a sense of accomplishment in our life, a feeling of joy. We step back and we feel good about ourselves that we fix something. But it's not long before we see something else, maybe even in the same room, that requires additional fixing, something else that's broken. And before long, what happens? The thing that we fixed in the first place, it breaks again. And this becomes a painful cycle of our lives, fixing broken things over and over again. And it can, become, it can feel hopeless at times. But this idea of fixing is related to the final chapter of the story of God, uh, the story of God, the restoration. Biblical restoration is this. It's the idea that God will restore all things by making them perfect and by making them permanently perfect. God fixes everything permanently, and he fixes everything perfectly. That's one of the most radical things that that we believe in our faith. Do you believe that? Wow, that God is going to make everything permanently perfect. For those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ, God has already fixed us. Now, you may be sitting there and you may not feel fixed. But Paul reminds us that anyone, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. He says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And then a couple of verses later, he says, he reminds us that Jesus, Jesus who had no sin, became sin so that through his death and resurrection, we become the righteousness of God. So in a very real way, we have been fixed. We have been made new, and we have been made right before God. But the challenge with restoration is that 
restoration is something that is not only ongoing, it's complete in one hand, but it's something that is still something that we look forward to. And in our continued need of fixing, we have not realized the completeness of being restored to God. In our continued need of fixing, we have not realized our completeness of being restored to God. Revelation 21 reminds us that a new day is coming. In the new earth, there will be no more death, no more pain, no more mourning, no more crying. It's it's almost hard to believe, but God will restore things. It says that he who is seated on the throne will make everything new. But we look around and everything is not new yet. Things continue to break. In fact, in most of our jobs, our jobs are based in the fact that fixing needs to occur. Almost every job, you can find somewhere in your job where you fix things. It may be a spreadsheet or it may be a piece of equipment. Or maybe you actually attempt to bring healing and fixing to human lives in some fashion. But our lives are based on fixing. But sometimes I think in the Christian life, because we do not fully understand and we have not fully realized the restoration of all things, we step back and we say, if God really is the restorer of everything, then why hasn't he fixed me yet? This morning I want to explore the idea of human restoration in particular. We're going to turn back to a story from the Old Testament. We turn back to one of the most hopeless times in all of history. The book of Judges ends with a sentence. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Turn to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth immediately follows the book of Judges. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seat in front of you, you can turn to page 184. We turn to the story of Ruth, and she will become a vivid picture of human restoration. I love this story because, well, it's short. It's only four chapters. (laughs) I like short stories. And it's vivid and it's just a a really beautiful picture of restoration. We're going to start at the beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1. In those days, when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. This man, Elimelech, took his wife, Naomi, along with their two sons, and they headed east out of the town of Bethlehem with the goal to make it to the country of Moab. Now, Bethlehem, one of the meanings of Bethlehem is the house of food. The house of food and the land of Canaan was empty. So Elimelech's family had to journey outside of Bethlehem to find food. It says they went on a journey. They would have had to head east from Bethlehem, crossing the historic Jordan River, and then they would have turned south 
to head to the country of Moab. And they would have probably traveled along a, a route called the King's Highway. Elimelech's family were Ephrathites, which means they were Jews. They happened to live in Judah, and specifically they were from the town of Bethlehem. They were a Jewish family, and they went to Moab, a place outside of the land of Canaan, and it says they lived there for a time. The story quickly turns to tragedy. Let's pick it up in verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Naomi is still the central character of the story at this point. She's left empty. Her situation is hopeless. And not only that, but her two daughters-in-law are brought into this hopeless story. Orpah and Ruth married into a family, and because of tragedy, they find themselves in this situation. And it's in the next scene that Ruth becomes the central figure of the story. Now, Ruth was not born into the faith, And like many of us, she felt no natural part of it at the beginning. But she came to find herself gathered into the story of this family. And in particular, it turns out that she found herself gathered into the story of God, even before she had her own faith. Her part is quiet and obscure, but her role proves to be critical at the end. Ruth's life is bookended by some of the greatest biblical characters that we still talk about today. Her predecessors are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and Joshua. And her life is followed by Samuel, King David, and King Solomon. But for whatever reason, God decides to gather Ruth into the story of God. And she is an unlikely carrier of the story of God. She's a Moabitess. That word's not even fun to say. And it just doesn't even sound nice to describe yourself. She's a foreigner from a despised nation. Listen to the way that the law describes those from Moab and the book of Deuteronomy from chapter 23, verse 3. This reminds us how unlikely a character Ruth is in the story of God. It says, no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord even down to the 10th generation. They're really doing a lot of work here, going to 10 generations to keep this family out of the assembly of a God. And for whatever reason, there was a time when that was helpful to the nation of Israel. But here, Ruth is gathered into the story of God. It's here I want to pause And I want to ask you, have you been gathered into the story of God? What I mean by that, by gathering in, is that I believe that God brings us into his story in very unique ways. In ways that we probably don't recognize at the beginning. In fact, there may be even a few people here 
sitting here wondering, why am I at a place of worship on Memorial Day weekend? And it could be that God is starting to gather you into his story. But for other, others of us, we were born into, into the center of a family of God. And by God's grace, we are still part of God's story. Either way, to understand restoration, we need to see ourselves as being gathered into the story of God. And this becomes the question that Ruth deals with. Naomi hears that food has returned to Bethlehem. The house of food has food. And it says it's from the Lord. Naomi plans to return to Bethlehem and she decides to take her daughters-in-law with her. So they set out north on the king's highway, returning back to Bethlehem. And it's there that they have a difficult family meeting. Look at verse 8. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But it's here on this road that the family has a difficult family meeting. Have you ever had to have a difficult family meeting? And the last place that you want to have a meeting like this is on this highway headed north to Bethlehem. But Naomi is required to paint the picture of hopelessness that exists around this family. They lived at a time when a widow and her two daughter widows did not have a lot of hopeful things to look forward to. Look at verse 11. Listen to how Naomi describes the situation. She says to them, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. It says they wept aloud on the street a second time. Orpah and Ruth are faced with a really difficult decision. Already they had lost their husbands and now they had to make a decision. Do they go back to their family and their land or do they stay with their mother-in-law? Orpah, Orpah, for whatever reason, she decides to return back to her family and she exits the story. But Ruth chooses differently. And I love verse 16. Allow me to read it for you. Listen to the way that Ruth replies to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Ruth replied, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. This is one of the most beautiful declarations of faith in all of scripture. And it's made by a Moabitess foreigner who decides that the God of her mother-in-law 
will be her God, and the people of her mother-in-law will be her people. So she decides to follow where Naomi will, will go, and she decides to stay where Naomi will stay. And she declares that only death will do them parting. What makes this a beautiful story is the way that Ruth starts to respond to a hopeless situation. During a time when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, Ruth, for whatever reason, discerns the right thing to do in her own eyes. And she responds in a godly way. While hopeless, she begins to pursue hope in her daily life. Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem. When they get there, everyone's astonished to see Naomi after such a long time, over 10 years. And they say, is this Naomi? And she arrives with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And she tells her friends in Bethlehem, she says, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. Naomi means pleasant, but Mara means bitter. She said, the Lord has dealt with me bitterly. And that's what my name should be. But the striking characterization in the story um, sets Ruth up as someone who is not bitter, but someone that's filled with hope. And that's what we'll see. One of the laws of Moses established the right for the poor to follow after the farmers, gleaning the scattered grain in the field, and the wisp of grain that they had left behind. I'm really glad that God provided for this law of Moses that actually ended up providing for Ruth and for Naomi. And that's what Ruth did. She set out to the grain fields. She followed the reapers. Naomi had a relative in the town on her husband's side from the clan of her husband, Elimelech. And he's described as a good man. His name is Boaz. And it just so happened that Ruth wandered into the fields of Boaz. That's actually how scripture describes it. It says that she, she just so happened to end up in his land. And she ends up gleaning in his fields. Turn over to chapter 2, verse 3. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now, as I read this story, the story is called a story of harvest, and you'll see why. And as we read it, I want you to keep in mind that Ruth is pursuing hope. And I want you to think about the decisions that she starts to make here as she's gleaning in the field. Verse 4. Just then, just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Do not go and glean in another field and do not go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting 
and follow along after the girls. I have told you, I have told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I think it's helpful to think of the story of Ruth as a harvest story. Boaz finds Ruth gleaning in his fields, and he, he has heard of his, her loyalty to Naomi. And he responds with tender affection and kindness and generosity. And it says that for the whole season, the whole harvest season, Ruth only gleans in the field of Boaz. And Boaz offers her something that she needs at this point. He offers her protection. Boaz, being in the family of Elimelech, could offer protection because he was a possible kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer is a biblical idea. The Old Testament law provided that kinsmen or relatives, the closest relative, could buy back an estate which had been lost through poverty. This kept the land in the possession of the family. And the kinsmen, of course, had to be willing to redeem the land. Not only did he need to be willing, but he needed to be able to. And if a widow was left in this family, the kinsman redeemer would also be required to marry the dead man's widow. And to keep that family line alive, the first child that they would have together would carry the name of the dead man's estate. At the end of the harvest season, on the threshing floor, Ruth comes to Boaz and she makes a request. Turn over to chapter 3. Look at verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. The kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning. If he wants to redeem, good. 
let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. The next morning, Boaz, with urgency, wakes up to this request that has been made of him. Is he willing to be the kinsman redeemer for Naomi and for Ruth and for their family? He gathers the elders of the town and he brings them to the gate of the city. And he tells the ten elders to sit down. And then in desperation he finds the kinsman redeemer that is nearer than he. And he asks this man, will you redeem the land of Naomi and Ruth? Surprisingly, he says, yes, I will. I will redeem it. Look at the way in chapter 4, verse 5, that Boaz responds. He says, on the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth, the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer steps back. He says, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I can't do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off their sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So Boaz, I guess he reaches down and grabs the sandal and he places it in the hands of the nearer kinsman redeemer and he redeems Ruth and he redeems Naomi and their family. Despite the fact that Ruth's child will not carry the name of Obez, he makes the sacrifice and the decision to redeem her. And the book ends in a very unassuming way. It ends with a family line. It starts with the family line of Perez. And it ends with three characters that are relevant to Ruth's life. Ruth has a son by Boaz. And his name is Obed. Ruth places Obed in the hands of Naomi. And Obed eventually becomes the father of Jesse. And Jesse has a son. And his name is David, and he becomes King David. So Ruth, the outsider, the foreigner, uprooted from her Moabite family, she turns out to be the great-grandmother of King David. And ultimately, she is in the family line of Jesus, our Messiah. Her name is mentioned in the book of Matthew. I believe that Ruth's life is one of the best pictures that we have of earthly restoration. And as we end this morning, I want to identify one thing that I think is very important in her life, and that is how she deals with hopeless situations. In the end, she gives us the best example that we have of hope rising from a place of hopelessness. How do we have hope? Has anyone ever asked you if you were feeling down, if they ever asked you just to be happy? And have you ever tried to put on a happy face when you're feeling hopeless inside? I feel like the hopeless 
feelings that we have inside when we're asked to put put on a happy face, that can be one of the most difficult things to put on. And it becomes this veil that we hide our hopelessness in. I want to tell you that hope is not putting on a happy face. It has to and needs to come from a deeper place, and it is a work of the Spirit in our lives. What do we see in Ruth? What we see in Ruth is that hope rises from a place of earthly hopelessness. Hope rises up in a place of earthly hopelessness. And I think like Ruth, we need to have the right perspective on the hopelessness around us. Especially if we want to have the best and the right understanding of the restoration of all things. I believe when it comes to fixing things and the hopelessness that's related to that, I believe there's two boundaries that are unhealthy. The first boundary is that there are some of us in this room, and you know who you are, you are really good at fixing things. And you've gotten so good at fixing things that you actually feel like there is hope in this world. That you have the ability to fix things in such a way that they will not break again. And I want to warn you that that is a dangerous place to walk this earth. In the feeling that there actually is hope in this earth and it comes by your hands. But there's another boundary that I think is even more dangerous. And that's the idea that we become so captivated by hopelessness and so wrapped up in it that that we lose sight that God is the restorer of all things. This is what we know. The two things that we know in restoration are that God will make everything new and that we who find salvation in Christ will be with him face to face. This is what we hope for even when things seem hopeless. And because of this, hope becomes the marker in our life. It becomes something that's observable in our lives. Last week we talked about rescue, being rescued from sin and death. And how we are rescued on a daily basis, both in big ways and small ways. We're constantly in need of rescue. The thing about rescue is that it's observable. You can observe rescue every day of your life. You can observe it, right? It doesn't take long before we realize we need rescue. We need to be rescued from our own sin and from death. But the thing with restoration, the final chapter of God, is that restoration is difficult to visualize. It's something that, in many ways, it's something that we can only imagine. We can only imagine that God is going to make everything new. And we can only imagine that we will be with God face to face. And for this reason, hope becomes the most important thing when it comes to restoration. It's the visible marker. What we can't see fully, we can see in part because of the hope that exists in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says it this way in verse 15. In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that you have inside of you. It's the hope that people see in your life. And it's hope that we 
can constantly observe in the life of Ruth. We end the story of God on a question. Can, can people observe hope in your life? We talk about this booklet as a means to allow people into the story of God. But this booklet only becomes an invitation if the hand that hands it is filled with hope and belief in the story that's contained in the booklet. The church historically has been criticized because we have given people a booklet that we're not sure if we really believe in the whole story. And I believe that's why the story of God does not end on rescue. We are rescued from things. We are rescued from sin. But the story of God ends on restoration, the restoration of all, all things. Not only are we rescued from sin, but we are restored unto God. And that's something that we are hopeful for. We experience it today in our salvation. And we look forward to it as we hope in the restoration of all things. We are saved under God, restored to relationship with Him. And the hope of our faith is that all things will be restored.